0: Turn if you would to well, it doesn't really matter where you turn. <laughs> the 16th chapter of the book of Mark. Last week I made the statement that we finished the book of Mark. Which kind of surprised people because there's 12 verses we did not cover. So today we're going to talk about those 12 verses. But actually what we're going to talk about is where we got the Bible, how we got the Bible, and why we use certain passages and not others. We have talked about this very briefly uh, at different points, because if you remember, as we worked through the book of Mark, there were a couple of places, like three verses, where it said, well, if you were counting the numbers, it just skipped a verse. And you go, how can that be? Somebody has taken something out of the Bible. Ah, that's what we're going to talk about today. A couple of weeks ago, Van Fox passed away. I don't know if you knew Van. He was in this class. Great guy. Maybe a little rough around the edges, but a great Christian guy. Now, if you had been here for a while, you would have known that he and I used to get into some... Uh, discussions, because I would read a verse, and he would tell me that's not what the Bible says, because he was a firm believer in the King James Bible, and he and I would discuss this, sometimes in class, sometimes out of class, and I finally told him, I said, Van, the church is not going back to the King James And he actually left the class for two or three years. And then he came back and he apologized, which, by the way, was not necessary because he hadn't done anything wrong, and came back into the class. Now, why am I saying this? Am I saying it because I'm here and he's not and I can get the last word? (laughs) Maybe. No, actually not at all. The reason that I'm saying that is to tell you that there are good, good Christian men and women on both sides of the discussion we're going to have today. I emailed uh, Doug Cecil this week. I asked Doug, uh, I don't know, this was a couple of years ago, you know, what are you doing all your time here? He said one of the things that he does is he's kind of been tagged with, if anybody has any theological questions, they get shoved to Doug. So I asked Doug. I said, Doug, in this email, the last 12 verses of Mark, yes or no? And his first sentence was, the church has no set position on this issue. So I, as a teacher, who am not supposed to teach anything that violates the doctrinal statement of this church, can teach anything I want about this. (laughs) And that's what we're going to do today. The question that is before us is why, in most modern manuscripts, the last 12 verses of the book of Mark are either not there, Or, as they're done in the ESV in front of you, it's put in brackets and kind of offset. And we're going to answer that question. But before we do that, there's lots of befores in this lesson. Before we do that, I'm going to tell you the conclusion of this lesson. Because a bunch of you have to get up and leave class because of choir and all of that. And you never get to the conclusion And I want you to know what the conclusion is. And that is you and I can have confidence in the scripture that is presented to us that it is the word of God. Even though there are some verses in the King James that are not in the ESV that you have in front of you. I have my King James right here. This is actually the first adult Bible I ever got. To be more specific, this is a Schofield reference Bible. Don't get us started on that. That's a whole different topic. Um, The church that I grew up in, when you entered the first grade, they gave you a Bible, and you were supposed to go to big church. Okay. Um, I have no idea what happened to that Bible, but this was the first adult Bible that I bought. So, where do we start? We're going to start by telling you how we didn't get the Bible. Okay? This was prompted by a discussion that I injected myself into several years ago. We were at, well, we were at the theater getting ready for a play. We were actually waiting for fight call. Anybody know what fight call is? If you have a fight in the play, every night before the play, you practice the fight in order, in theory, to be safe. That's the theory. So we were all sitting around waiting, and a couple of people actually sitting in front of me were discussing how we got the Bible, and they were very wrong. So I, being me, just kind of hinted that maybe they weren't talking about it the correct way. Are you at all familiar with the telephone game? I call up Sterling and I give him a message. And I tell him to call Sam and give him that message. And he calls Tim, who calls Jim, who calls, you get the picture right. And eventually the last person calls me to give me the message and it looks nothing like the message that I gave at the very beginning. Because it kind of gets lost in translation as it goes. And this guy was convinced that that's how the Bible was translated. Somebody wrote down the Bible, then somebody translated it, then somebody translated it based on that translation, then somebody translated it based on that, on that, on that, and that. In fact, it was even more than that. He thought that what happened was the first guy translated it And there was some of it he didn't like, so he threw that away. And the second guy translated and well, there was some of it he didn't like, so he threw that away, and so on. So by the time it gets to us today, we've gone through 20 different translations, and there's no way in the world to know who threw what out. That's how he thought we got the Bible. And I said, no, we actually always, all modern translations, go back to the original Greek to begin their translation. Well, there is actually a modern translation that goes back to the original Aramaic. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, is there an original Aramaic? The answer is no. There is an Aramaic translation from the 5th century, but this guy has the original Aramaic translation because God gave it to him. God had at some point revealed to him what the original was, and he was translating it. In fact, right now he's in the process of translating John 22. Now, if you read your Bible, you know there is no John 22, never has been a John 22, never will be, but God has revealed to him what's in the Aramaic version of John 22, Go figure. Apart from that, most modern translation efforts go back to the original Greek. And the debate we have is what is in the original Greek. Now, I do not speak Greek. I do not pretend to speak Greek. Don told me just a moment ago that he knows a little Greek, who runs a Greek restaurant down the street. <laughs> but before we do that, let's jump to a different spot in history. In 1631, in England, they were, a, book was print, a Bible was printed, and these are printed, not handwritten, printed, that became known as the Wicked Bible. That's what it was called. Why? Because they inadvertently left the word not out of the Seventh Commandment. Do you know what the Seventh Commandment is? The Bible said, thou shalt commit adultery. Because he accidentally left the word not out. He actually got into a lot of trouble about this. Uh, like he was tried for heresy as if, you know, he had done this on purpose. Apparently it was just a very sloppy translation, I mean, a printing of the King James Bible. But we can laugh at that. Why? Because we have enough copies of the Bible to know that the word not belongs in the seventh commandment. We know that. Anybody here want to debate that question? We can have a very short debate about that. When dealing with old manuscripts, you're looking for two characteristics. One, you're looking for the number of manuscripts that you have. Okay? If you look at ancient writings like Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic Wars or Livy or any of those, you have a handful of copies maybe 10 maybe 20 if you're looking at the bible we have 10,000 manuscripts of the new testament ancient manuscripts in addition to those 10,000 manuscripts we also have million references in the early church fathers from the new testament i'm writing a commentary on mark and i write the verses in the commentary and now we can go look at that commentary and say ah that's what mark verse whatever said and by the way you do know right there were no verse markings in the original bible that came later as a an aid for us to study the bible So The first thing you look at is the number of manuscripts, but the second thing you look at is how close are the manuscripts that you have in time to the original document. Now, you know, right, we do not have the copy that Mark set down and wrote out the book of Mark. To the best of our knowledge, we do not have that copy. Okay? The odds are it would not have survived just general life. But what we do have are copies that go back to the first and into the second century of the New Testament scriptures, which, by the way, is really really good. Remember Caesar and the Gaelic Wars and Livy and all of those others? Those handful of manuscripts that we have, they're usually taken from about the 9th, 10th century or something in that time period. A thousand years from when the original was written. Now, having multiple copies, like 10,000 of them, is both a blessing and maybe a curse. The curse is that you're going to find differences between them. I mean, let's just say I took 10 of you randomly out of this room, gave you a stack of notebook paper and a copy of the ESV Bible, and I said, copy the book of Mark for me. Okay? and I sent you off to do that. You could do that. I mean, it's not that big. You could actually do that. And then I take those 10 copies, and I start lining them up side by side, and I can almost guarantee one of you, two of you, all of you are somewhere going to make a typo in that copy, right? You're going to either swap some letters... You might skip a line. That's actually very common. You know, you're copying down and you skip the next line, but you really skip two lines. It's actually very common. Or you skip a word. Even if you're attempting to do it well, it's quite likely you're going to make mistakes. So when we look at these 10,000 manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, guess what? We find a lot of variation between them. But the vast majority, like almost but not quite all, are things that it's very clear that guy transposed that word. That guy swapped those letters. That guy did something that by looking at the multiple copies, we can say this is what it's supposed to say. Without question. Those are easy to do. Okay? So we have what becomes known as a critical edition of the Greek text of the New Testament. What do I mean by that? I, the scholar, sit down and lay before me a dozen manuscripts. And I go, ah, that one has a typo, I can tell. This one is this. And I publish a Greek New Testament based on a critical examination of the available manuscripts. This is what a man by the name of Erasmus did in the Renaissance period. Remember, the Renaissance had a big interest in going back to the originals, back to the beginning, back to the Greek and Latin text in the case of classical literature. And Erasmus, being a Catholic monk, priest, monk, I think he was a monk, uh, wanted to do that with the New Testament. So he took the Available Greek manuscripts laid them out and started coming up with a Greek copy of the New Testament. And I might add, that was what was used when Martin Luther wanted to write his German version. He took Erasmus's Greek version and translated it into German, which is kind of fascinating to me because... Erasmus, and uh, particularly, and Luther got into all kinds of arguments about stuff. No, Calvin. Calvin got into arguments with him about all kinds of stuff. So it wasn't like, I mean, he's a good Catholic, and Martin Luther is a, well, not a good Catholic, and yet he still recognized the scholarship that was used to produce that Greek New Testament. The problem was... Erasmus, in his desire to do a great job, actually had a very limited number of manuscripts to work from. Since that time, we've had an explosion of manuscripts. People have scoured through monastery libraries and through this place and that place, and they have come up with many, many manuscripts. So today, there are basically, and I say basically because there's differences of opinion about all of this, two versions of the Greek New Testament. One version is known as the majority text. Why do you think it's called the majority text? This is not a hard question. If you look at these 10,000 manuscripts, the majority of them say this. The majority text says that there's 12 verses at the end of the book of Mark. But then there's a second one. Remember? Number of copies and how close they were to the original and what we have found in modern scholarship, and I will say modern scholarship, this is back to the 1800s, is that the oldest texts are not necessarily the majority text. Uh, these are often referred to as the Alexandria text because some of them come from Alexandra, not Virginia, but... Egypt, and they are a minority of the copies that we have, but they are recognized by most scholars as being the oldest copies. So, you will be reading your New Testament, and if you're paying attention to the verses, you'll see that a verse gets skipped. And in the ESV, you'll look at the bottom because there's a footnote, and it will tell you the oldest manuscripts do not include this verse. That's what they will say. Now, I told you, right, you lay out all these manuscripts, there's lots of differences between them. 95 99% of those differences are typos. The actual differences between these Greek texts comes down to, I don't know, I read 14, I read 16, I read 20 different verses. And here's the thing you need to know. None of these verses affect any Christian doctrine that you or I believe today. We actually saw some in the book of Mark and there were obviously repetitions of earlier verses in the same chapter. Okay? How did they show up? Well, somebody thought they were important and added them, I guess. So when we're looking at the Greek text for the New Testament... We can go with the majority text, this is what the most copies say, or we can go with the oldest copies because that has certain credibility because it would have been less likely to be changed in time. Now, back to the last 12 verses of the book of Mark. The book of Mark ended, as we saw last week, very, very abruptly. And they, the women, went out and fled from the tomb. This is verse 8. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Stop. That's a horrible ending to a book. What happened after that? Stuff happened after that. We know stuff happened after that, because we also have Matthew, Luke, and John. We know that stuff happened. Well, first off, Mark has been a rather abrupt book to begin with. I mean, we began, if you remember, with this comment that the book of Mark is this, 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 and we're done. Whereas John goes off into all this flowery language. Matthew is, let's talk about how all this fits into the Old Testament. And Luke is, I'm a physician and I'm going to investigate this. Mark is just the facts. Then you read the next 12 verses. And what you see, if you do understand Greek, and I told you right, I don't, is that they're not really written in the same style as the previous chapters of the book of Mark. But you can understand, right, why someone much later who had a copy of the book of Mark wanted a little bit more. So somebody somewhere may have added a few verses. This is known as the alternate ending to the book of Mark. And to be more specific, this is known as the longer alternative ending to the book of Mark. There's actually a shorter one, too, that appears more rarely, and sometimes books, I mean, uh, manuscripts will actually put both of them in there. Here's the short one, here's the long one, take your pick. This begins to show up in manuscripts around the 4th, 5th century, where we begin to see this longer ending. But we know that people knew about it because early church fathers were asked, we have these records, were asked, should these be included or not? And the answer was generally no, that they shouldn't be. Because they were not in the oldest manuscripts. And these would be the oldest manuscripts that were being read in the 4th, 3rd, and 4th centuries. So we have some references to them, but we don't have them in the manuscripts. And the references that we do have as a general rule not totally, but as a general rule, seem to claim that they were not part of the original text. Now, as Wikipedia will tell you, volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of books and scholarly articles have been written about whether these verses belong in this text. And you know what? I'm not really smart enough to tell you which is which. I will leave that to smarter people than I. But I do know that there is nothing in these 12 verses that is going to challenge or change your understanding of Christianity and the Bible. The only thing that kind of comes close is there's a couple of verses in there. You notice I'm not reading it, right? There's a couple of verses in there that talk about you getting bit by snakes and they won't kill you, and you drinking poison and it won't kill you. So that's what allows some of our brothers to practice snake handling and all of this stuff to show that they have faith. I do not recommend that, okay? You're risking your life on an alternate ending to the book of just not going to do it. Now, everything that I've just described to you is a field of study known as textual criticism. Textual criticism simply lays out the manuscripts and attempts to understand how we got the text that is used to translate the Bible into what you and I are reading today. Now, this may shock you, Translators have made errors before. Okay? Our church believes that the Bible, in its original autographs, that is the text written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, et cetera, et cetera, that they are the inspired Word of God. But we acknowledge the fact that people have made errors in the translations at different times. Now, that's horrible, right? Well, not really. As I said, modern translations are generally done, generally done, first off, by a group. Secondly, they go back to the Greek manuscripts, studying what was in the original text, and that's what they translate today. Translations are interesting because when you translate something, you oftentimes have, no, you always have some philosophy behind that translation. There are those that attempt to make a somewhat exact Word-by-word translation, adjusting the grammar and all of that stuff. And it is a more rigorous translation. There are others who want to capture the context. I mean, the the idea of a passage. You ever read the Living Bible? It is a paraphrase. It takes this passage and translates it and paraphrases it. And you know what? I'm not going to condemn that. There have been times, I have to confess, that in my reading through the Bible in a year program, you get to Leviticus, Numbers, and a paraphrase looks really good. (laughs) Just saying. So when you are studying the Bible, you want to get a modern translation that was usually done by a committee because that means people are checking on each other. I might add there are some good translations done by individuals, but it carries more of a, this is my view of what it should say. And that's fine. But when you're studying something, you probably need a translation. And that's why our church uses the ESV. We, When I started here, we used the NIV, and, um, which was great. But at some point the editors of the NIV started making some changes in it, generally around the area of gender pronouns that we thought were a little going in the wrong direction. So I have NIVs at home, I have older NIVs that I use, and I use the ESV. Why? Because that's what we use in our class. And actually, I had started using it for my study before we as a church transitioned. So, all of that is to say that you can have confidence that the book sitting in your lap is the Word of God transmitted to us. Now, what's wrong with the King James? Why was Van wrong The King James is a beautiful translation of the Bible. It is a piece of literature that fits into Western civilization just like the works of Shakespeare. But I remember, I remember this clearly. I was driving my kids and the girl across the street to Awana's. Anybody know what Awana's is? It's a children's program, Bible, great program. And the neighbor girl was reading out of her King James Version. The, I guess it was what they were going to talk about that night. I don't know why she was reading it. And she read this passage like, you know, a chapter as we're driving. And she gets to the end of it, and she says, I don't have a clue what that means. Why? Because the language is archaic. Now, if you were born and raised on the King James, which I might add I was, then it does have a flow, and you begin to understand it because you've read it before. You begin to understand what quit ye like men means. Otherwise, you look, go quit? What does that mean? It is a beautiful language, but it is like reading Shakespeare, which is difficult for some people who have not experienced enough of it to get into the rhythm of the language. That's why we collectively as a church, collectively, this is the big picture church, See a need for newer translations of the Bible so that you and I can understand it in the language that you and I are used to talking with every day. Now, once again, there are those who make translation decisions that are a little questionable, like going back to the ancient uh, Aramaic when there is no ancient Aramaic. But most of the time, that is not an issue. So, I do want to spend just 30 seconds, though, telling you about something else. This is referred to as textual um, criticism. How do I determine what the ancient manuscripts say? It is oftentimes, though, connected to what is referred to as higher criticism. Higher criticism is a very different thing and is highly unbiblical. Can I just say that? Higher criticism wants to look at this book and say, how did we get this? And you and I go, I know the answer to that question. God gave it to godly men who wrote it down for our edification. Ah, No. Higher criticism says that people... Human beings, just like you and I, sat down and wrote down pieces of it, and other human beings got together and merged it together, and other human beings added some stuff to it, and what we have today is just a concoction put together by human beings based on the writings of other human beings. This gets really fun when you start looking at, say, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and we have this guy that says, here is this part that was the original, and here's this part that was the original. By the way, these are J and E, Jehovah Elohim, because that was obviously two parts. And then somebody else to added all the stuff about the priest, that's P. And somebody else uh, added the law stuff, and that's D. And somebody took all of these pieces and put it together sometime hundreds of years after you and I think Moses ever wrote it. That is the field of higher criticism. It does not acknowledge the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the authors who penned the Bible that is before us. So you should avoid... The higher criticism, but acknowledge that textual criticism actually does provide us with useful understanding. The higher criticism produces all kinds of bizarre things. Any of you remember several years ago the pink letter edition of the Bible? You know what a red letter edition is, right? The words of Jesus are put in red. And you know, right, that's not in the original. Okay. So, The pink letter edition is, I've got this committee, and I take a vote. Do you think Jesus actually said that? And everybody says, sure, he said that. We'll put it in red. We take a vote, and everybody says, no, he didn't say that. So we put it in black. But what if half of you say that he did? Pink. It changes shades of red based on how many people vote and say, yes, he did, or no, he didn't. Because you know, right, of course, Jesus would never say anything about hell. That was obviously added by someone else later in time. Well, he did speak about hell, and it wasn't a place you wanted to go. Now, that is the discussion of the last 12 verses of the book of Mark. Now, I grew up reading the last 12 verses, I would love the last 12 verses to be there. They probably aren't. Having said that, there are people in this church, there are people in this class, there are people in heaven by the name of Van who say (laughs) they should be there. And you know what? I'm going to say, bless your heart, read your Bible every day, and do what God tells you to do. Okay? Now, How are we going to end, for real, the book of Mark? We're going to look at Mark, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Because this is where we started it. Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is the purpose of the book of Mark? It is to convince you and me, and by the way, the Gentile Roman audience, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why he wrote this. Do you remember, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's interacting with people. He dies. There's storms, lightning, lightning all of this stuff, and the Roman centurion, a good old-fashioned pagan Roman centurion, is sitting there watching all of this stuff, and what does he say at the very end? Surely, this was the Son of God. Sometimes you and I, well we do what we did in high school English class. I've got this love-hate relationship with Shakespeare. We mentioned him a while ago, right? So we, in high school English class, read Julius Caesar, Hamlet, and we sat there and we tore them apart. Piece by piece. Let's talk about the meter of this. Let's talk about why this word was used. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. And you want to know a secret? I never finished a Shakespeare play in high school because we were too busy tearing the thing apart. Do you know what you need to do? You need to experience Shakespeare. Sometimes when you and I are reading the Bible... I, this is my job, I sit there and tear it apart. And we should do that. We are told to examine it. We are told to study it. We are told to meditate on it. We are supposed to do that. But sometimes we forget that it was written not just for us to tear it apart. It was written so that we would know that Jesus is not was, is the Son of God, and that you and I have been called to respond to the gospel. Jesus died on our behalf and was raised again in order that you and I might have eternal life, and we're supposed to do what he tells us to do. That's why it was written. So if I sit here and discuss Greek manuscripts with you all day long, and you've heard about all I know about it, and we do not end the discussion with, do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God that came to earth, was crucified, and was raised from the dead, what good has it done us? Next week is Easter. We will not be meeting. The week after that, we are going to start the book of 1 John. And I've never done 1 John, so it'll be fun. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for telling us about Jesus and telling us how we are to live our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.